making the world healthier, safer, and more efficient. That's the mission for IT professionals at Lidos. And right now, they're looking for the next generation of innovators to help transform the business and change the future of work. Excellent pay and sign-on bonuses available. Security clearance required. Put your software skills to work with Lidos. Learn more at Lidos.com slash PHX2. That's L-E-I-D-O-S dot com slash PHX2. We are grateful to have our friends at Sleep Number sponsoring the Thrive Global podcast. The Sleep Number bed adjusts on each side, so it works for both you and your partner. Experience the Sleep Number bed exclusively at one of their 550 stores nationwide. Check them out at sleepnumber.com slash thrive. Hello and welcome to the Thrive Global podcast on iHeartRadio. My guest today is Gabby Bernstein, the motivational writer, international speaker, and author of several bestsellers, including most recently, The Universe Has Your Back. Her next book, Judgment Detox, is due out in January, and I can't wait. She was once called a next-generation thought leader by Oprah, who knows her thought leaders. Gabby, welcome to the Thrive Podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you. I'm so happy to be with you. I really do love seeing you. Oh, I love seeing you. You're, you're really amazing. And you've helped so many people live their lives with less stress and more productivity and more happiness. Thank you for what you're doing. But you weren't always this spiritually put together centered person. And you actually did a video uh, with us on Thrive for our launch about your turning point. Hmm. And you said that you were spiritually and emotionally bankrupt at that point. Tell us what happened. In my early 20s, I had a little detour. <laughs> but prior to that, growing up in, in my childhood and my adolescence, my, my, I did have a very rich spiritual life. My mother taught me how to meditate. I visited ashrams. I was given mantras. And so I had a spiritual foundation, which was very unique at the time, particularly then. But then in my 20s, I started my first business here in New York City. I was representing nightclubs, owning a PR company. And I really detoured into the belief systems that my success and my happiness and my self-worth were going to be found outside of myself, that I was going to find that serenity and safety that I was looking for in my credentials or in my access to some nightclub, or in a romantic relationship, or in, in a pair of shoes, or something really, <laughs> an exterior experience. Anyone that's listening right now knows that that doesn't work. We know that when we look outside, we will always fall short. But that search was constant, and ultimately, when you don't find it somewhere, you look for it somewhere else, and you look for it somewhere else. And, and eventually, that search turned into a very dark drug addiction. I was 25 years old by the time I was really hitting a bottom with my drug addiction and very grateful that I had this addiction because it was quick, it was fast, and it was tough, but it also brought me to my knees and it really helped me completely surrender. And for many months leading up to my bottom, I would look at this stack of self-help books that I had next to my bed. So I had Deepak Chopra and Marianne Williamson and Wayne Dyer. And I'd be at these after hours parties with like random people in my apartment. And I'd be pointing at these books and saying, I'm going to be a motivational speaker and a self-help book author. And these people would just laugh at me. But I knew, I really knew that that was something that I was, I knew there was more for me. So hitting bottom was easy, actually. Hitting bottom was the easy part. 
was it was the months leading up to that that were terribly difficult. So hitting that bottom, I, I said a prayer. I said, I need a miracle. I need to. I need something different than this. At that point, that day, it was actually 12 years ago, uh, October 2nd. So this month, I celebrated 12 years of mm-hmm. sober recovery. <laughs> and, uh, Congratulations. Yeah, That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And was there one particular book, one particular person that helped you during this turning point? Marianne Williamson was by far the most transformational teacher at that time for me because when I first got sober, I had this little, um, she was this tiny little blonde woman. She was my first sponsor in my recovery, this like real smoker's voice. And one day she came to me and she's like, read this. And I was like, what is this? And she's like, I just changed your life, kid. (laughs) She she handed me this book and it was a return to love. And I read Marianne's book in one night. I was never the same. She demystified the principles of A Course in Miracles. She gate, which is a metaphysical text on forgiveness and transforming your belief systems. And so this was like the keys to the kingdom. She handed it to me. I was blown away by the fact that there was such a gentler, softer way to live. And I became obsessed with her work. And not only did I did I really gain a lot from her teachings, but also seeing this role model of what it was that I wanted to step into and who I wanted to be as a teacher. And uh, actually, there's just a really nice story about that. So I went to see Marianne speak in probably at this point about a year into following Yes. Her. And it's my first time seeing her live. And I somehow had the strength to get my hand up. And I, I said, listen, how would you recommend that I share these principles with my generation? And she looked me in the eye with this real fierce knowing, like something came over her. She knew. And she said, I don't know why, but I believe you're going to do this. And she said, just do the workbook. She was talking about A Course in Miracles. Do the workbook, read the text, do the teacher's manual, and get on your knees and ask God how he plans for you to share this with your generation. Mm-hmm. And I listened to her, and and she's now, she's now a great friend of mine, obviously my mentor, and really set me on my path that day and said, yes, you can do this. That is amazing. And how did your definition and understanding of success change through this journey? It's changed a lot. Um, I think early in my career, success, um, particularly when I was in PR and I was living in that other way, uh, success was all about how much can I get? What are my credentials? What does it say president on my business card? You know, who am I? Who am I? And as I've grown spiritually and and really centered into the intention behind the work that I do, my definition of success really is based on how much fun I'm having. That's how I measure my success. If I'm having a good time, then I am having a successful day because I know that that fun and that joy is the momentum that propels me forward and creates more of what I want. So I love that because I I measure my success too by joy Mm. because I find that during the many years when I was just going, going, going and being always on and thought, this was the way to be successful. I had lost touch of how key it is not just to be effective, but to be joyful on the journey. Yeah. So I love that. And to say yes to your life. There were so many years where I was running from some, you know, look, a lot of this has also taken a lot of real bravery and personal growth to start to stop running and start living, right? I think that there's, there's a lot of us uh, we're running from things we don't even know about unconscious traumas, memories from our past. And and for me, I had to, in the last two years in particular, face some really scary things that memories that I hadn't known about, dissociative experiences that 
in the experience of facing, and, and because I had such a strong spiritual foundation and commitment to my faith, I've been able to have the bravery to wonder, what is, why am I running? Why have I been so stressed out? Why have I been not living my life? And so often there's something, you know, people walk around really stressed out, but they don't actually really wonder, what am I running from? Well, I think that has a lot to do with uh, the fact that we are afraid often of things that really don't deserve to be scaring us. I mm. mean, the, I love that quote um, by Socrates who said, courage is the knowledge of what is not to be feared. Yeah. And that gives you a certain peace about all yeah. the things that from the past or from the future that um, bring so many fears up in us. But I'm really fascinated by your new book, uh, Judgment Detox. I didn't feel uh, you were going to like it. Yes, <laughs> I absolutely love it because I've always talked about, uh, first of all, that voice in our head, the voice of self-judgment uh, that I call the obnoxious roommate living in my head mm-hmm. uh, that puts me down, that uh, doubts me, that questions everything from what am I wearing, how am I looking, what am I saying? <laughs> and uh, Gabby, you have no idea how strong that voice was in my head for so many years and how clear it was looking back that this was the most exhausting thing in my life. It it was not really about what I did. It was about what the voice did in my head that led to my feeling completely depleted. So what made you decide to focus on judgments? For a long time, I thought I wrote my books for what other people needed, for what I thought my, my readers were ready for. But I realized over the last two years that I actually write my books for what I need. And I felt like I was suffering from the same voice that you're talking about, not just with the self-judgment, but with the addiction and the habit of judgment. And obviously, judgment has become such a pervasive issue. We, it's everywhere. And I, I was writing this book during the 2016 election. So I was really in, we were in the throw of judgment at an all-time high, the most divisive times that we've ever seen, and obviously it continues to get a little bit worse. So I was not only living it personally because of this this addiction to judgment, which I can get to, but also just seeing seeing it around me, see, seeing the world hitting bottom with judgment, and really recognizing the separation that we create this this voice of fear, the voice of of I, better than special, I'm not, I'm not good enough, all those stories creating such a division with amongst people, amongst our relationships. And then really what is the the biggest division there? That's that's it's the separation from our truth, the separation from our connection to our our center, our spiritual condition. And so I was seeing it really wreak havoc in my life. So I was feeling guilty because here I am, a spiritual teacher, really wanting to create community and connectedness, but still addicted to this pattern. And I was also really conscious of how bad it was getting in the world. It was really clear to me that this was a time that this topic needed to be tackled. And also, I think intuitively, these topics come to me when I'm meant to write them. So a lot of times I just step back and say, what would you have me do? And that's when the next topic for the book comes. So I know that there's a higher power saying, this is now, we need to talk about this. So personally and intuitively is really the answer. And I love the fact that you said gossip by another name is also judgment. Tell me more Absolutely. about that. Well, we get high on it. And so I really I really uh, describe judgment throughout the book and compare it to an addictive pattern. 
So when we are uncomfortable in our own shame and our own traumas, our own experiences, we do something in order to anesthetize that feeling of shame. So we may pick up a drink. We may uh, overwork. I mean, work addiction. You and I could do a whole thing on work addiction. I mean, that's a, <laughs> that's a topic that I've been really wanting to tackle because I, I, I lived it even in my in over a decade of sober recovery. I was struggling with work addiction. But we have all these addictive patterns that we use to anesthetize that pain. And judgment's one of the big ones. Judgment is one of the ones that we justify so we don't see it as an addiction. But I want to call it out now. It is an addiction. It is a way of not mm-hmm. feeling. And so when we judge and when we gossip, we project out what we don't want to feel within. These are disowned parts of our shadow. And we are saying, well, if I deflect it out there, then I don't have to feel it. But what happens is it creates this judgment cycle. So I don't feel good, so I'm going to put it out on somebody else. But then I feel guilty for judging, so I judge myself for it. <laughs> and then I don't feel good again, so I'm going to put it back out there, and I'm going to judge you know, politics or whatever. Then I don't feel good, so I come back on myself. And it's this cycle of judgment, which becomes an addictive pattern. And gossip is right there. This is the and key of it. And how do you suggest we break it? So the first step is to witness your judgment without judgment. Similar to the Socrates quote that you shared, which is we have to look at it. We have to understand the fear in order to know that it's not real. And so we have to witness that judgment and understand what are the root cause conditions that live beneath this behavior. And when you start to to witness your judgment, you'll be tempted to judge yourself for how judgmental you are. (laughs) So that's why that first step is witness your judgment without judgment, to really be compassionate, generous, kind, and enthusiastic about the process. And then it continues on to really help you honor the wounds that live beneath the judgment, because there's a lot of really why would we judge if we were happy, if we felt confident, if we felt supported and fulfilled and inspired and creative and healthy, why would we judge? We'd have much better things to focus on. So we have moments of that when we're feeling creative and how could we judge in this moment? But then we have that that fear-based belief system that just pulls us back. So really honoring the wounds that live beneath the judgment. So those are the first two steps. Witness the judgment and look at the wounds. What do we do with social media? Because social media fuels so many judgments, including self-judgments, mm-hmm. you know, comparisons, uh, how we look compared to the people we follow or our friends look or what we're doing or are we having as much fun. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm really concerned about the impact that this is having, especially on teenagers, mm-hmm. on people before they've developed their own toolbox of how to deal with all these things. Yeah, my hope is that moms will take this book and do book clubs for their teenage girls and you know help them guide them through the process because it's it's an epidemic really seeing how uh, and it's not just teenagers it's adults too yes, yes, <laughs> plenty of people but at least you so, hope adults have a few more they have tools. a little bit more consciousness yes. and they can they can work their way out but uh, yeah teenagers I mean it's creating really big problems so some of the things that I've that I, some of the I hate to use the word rules but some of the guidelines that I've applied in my own life are. I really only follow people that inspire me. I forgive and delete is a huge one. <laughs> so to be honest with you, I think we attract what we are really focused on, of course. So I feel good about the content I put out. And I always make sure that whatever content I'm sharing makes me feel good. And so when I do that, I can know that it won't be received with judgment. It, it, it just works. If I feel aligned with it, who even if somebody's not into it, they'll, they won't, fight back. You know, it won't won't create this this energy. I think 
when we judge someone's social feed, we're often picking up on maybe their own vibrational insecurities or something about the post that may have had some some tinge of showiness or something that may not have been in alignment. So I trust that what I put out will be received well. If and when it's not, which, of course, it's it's not always you know, there's people out there that love to create controversy, my way is to forgive and delete. I do not reply to negative comments. I just can't. I mean, what's the point? So I just I forgive them, and I just delete the comment. And sometimes they come back and say, why'd you delete me? <laughs> delete it again. <laughs> um, and that's just a, it's a, it's a really nice practice. And, and it keeps, and, and it keeps, and I've made very clear my, on my, on my feed, I like to keep my social feed clean and, and, and positive. In terms of comparing myself to others on social or, or what others can do when they find themselves comparing, you know, really rather than stop following people and really look within and say, you know, what is, what's up for me? What do I need to, I had a girlfriend the other day, she has so much going for her and she just said, I had to stop following all these people because I just kept comparing myself to them. And I said, actually, maybe you, you do follow them. And when you notice yourself triggered, you do some work on it. You bring mm-hmm. it to your spiritual practice. You practice the six steps in the judgment detox I'd given her the galley of the books. Like, let's get started. You know, take yourself through these steps rather than just avoid the triggers. Look at them. Look at them head on. Use them. See these moments of comparison as opportunities to go deeper in the healing of your own psyche. And, you know, there's a beautiful quote by this this great Course in Miracles teacher, Ken Wapnick, and he says, Be grateful for the things that bring you the most discomfort because they're revealing to you what you still need to heal. Mm. So don't don't avoid it. Beautiful. But also, you know, if you're ready, exactly, because we need to be gentle with ourselves. And I say to people, if you're not ready right now, if you're going through a hard time, um, don't follow people that you're comparing yourself with until you're ready. And then you can start again. Yeah, I think readiness is important. Readiness is so key. And... um, I love the forgive and delete. Does it have to be forgive and delete, or can it be delete and forgive? You can. You can. <laughs> I actually would say forgive and delete because energy is in is in the internet. So if you delete, like you know, I'm deleting quickly, and then go through. I mean, that's fine. That's great, but that will it will be felt. So thinking about your your email communication, your social media communication. It from the quantum realm, thinking about the fact that the energy and the thoughts that you put into that communication, even if you mo- write the most perfect words or delete the post right away, it will be felt the way that you've put the energy into it. So it, it's something to consider. It's, 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 it's an amazing way to, to approach your experience of the Internet. I love that. And, and I love the fact that that's when we can learn to celebrate our own uniqueness. Right. One of my favorite quotes is by Barishnikov, who said, I don't try to dance better than anyone else. I just try to dance better than myself. Mm-hmm. And that's a hard thing to do, but it's so empowering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think when we stop focusing on what we don't have, what someone that has something that we don't have, but instead start focusing on what's thriving in our own lives, we end up creating more of what we want. The energy of comparison is an energy of lack. Yes. And it creates, it's, it's, it's sending a message to the universe that that thing I want, I'm not worthy of. So if we're jealous of somebody for having something we don't want, we're actually sending a message that I'm not worthy of having that. The whole problem with goals outside of us before we do any work in ourselves, because that, again, exaggerates the lack element. Yeah. Instead of the gratitude element. And... 
I love everything you've written about gratitude and it's something very important and being in my life and I love the fact that um, the root of the word is the same as the word grace because moving from struggle to grace is, is such a big part of spiritual life. Yeah. I like to uh, practice appreciation and gratitude regularly. Uh, it's something that's transformed my marriage, actually. I'd love to share this for yes. for people in all relationships. We wake up in the morning and typically a couple may be like, I got to do this. I got to get out of bed. We've done that. We've been in that place. But we started to get into this practice of telling each other what we're grateful for about the other person. So imagine starting your day saying, I'm so grateful that you're such a great cook. I'm so grateful that you take such care of me. I'm so grateful that you make me feel so good about myself. I'm grateful that you booked a nice dinner reservation tonight. We did it this morning. It's our, my, my four-year wedding anniversary today. Oh, and happy so, anniversary. <laughs> and so we, of course, did our appreciation. Where are you going for dinner? Um, we're going to the new Jean-Georges restaurant. It's What is it? Public something? Yes, I heard it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So I was grateful for the reservation. <laughs> so we, we just go down and we list what we're appreciative of. I'm, I appreciate you for this. I appreciate you for this. It just sets you up to win. It, I mean, it's such a great morning. And then... When we notice ourselves, like if we're driving and we're in a fight, the way we get out is to start to play the appreciation game again and start to just appreciate and appreciate more. It's such an instant, it's such an instant way of getting out of any silliness and really back, get back into that momentum with each other. And it's so great that you reminded everyone that relationships are works in progress. Oh, yeah. There is no way that you can have a relationship without having to deal with problems, conflicts, whatever emerges. So to have that uh, appreciation game in your back pocket is fantastic. Major. Yeah. Major. And also back to intention. We were talking earlier about a book that a friend of ours, Brandon Bouchard, has written where he talks a lot about intention. I find waking up in the morning and not rushing to my phone yeah. um, is a key to setting my intention for the day. Because mm-hmm. for me, the phone contains everything the world wants of me. Yeah. And sometimes we can get lost in other people's agenda and yeah. forget what's my intention for the day. So yeah. how do you bring intention into what you're doing and into your day and your relationships? So now I have a bed for my phone, thanks to you. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you listening, Ariana gave me a, a phone bed, which you'll all be seeing a lot of. Um, so I'll be putting my phone to bed when I go to sleep at night. I will, I promise. I'll send you a video. I, I really love this idea of having your phone in a separate room because it, at, at the very least, you have those moments or the few minutes when you're just not with your agenda of other people, exactly. But for me, intentions have changed everything. Uh, I was telling you earlier, after reading this in Brendan's book, I started practicing asking my team, hey, what's the intention of what we're doing in this email? Or what's the intention of this event that we're hosting? And every time we'd come back to intention, it would just bring us back into how can we be of higher service? This is really just the bottom line. And it gave such a clearer through line. It makes people feel like they're included when you ask them, how can we be in intention together? Setting up, you know, anytime you... Get on a, a call with someone work-related. I work a lot with Lululemon, and they have such an amazing uh, office culture, right? So it's really based on beautiful spiritual foundation. And I used to always find it so interesting. They'd get on the call and say, say things like, 
what's the intention of this call, everyone? And my agent at William Morris would get on and be like, what are these people talking about? And I'd be like, Miles, you know, get get with the program. It works. Like, look at the success of this company. Look at all these happy people that work for them. It's working, right? So uh, I think we can all really think about how we can bring that type of intention setting into particular work environment into our homes with your children even asking them, you know, what is your intention for creating that art or what is your intention in this friendship? Helping them think in that way. And for me, the more uh, the more I've focused on the intention behind what I'm doing, the almost the more flow I bring to it because it's 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 a clear through line of what it is that I'm trying to create. And uh, it doesn't feel like it's all over the place. And you talked earlier about judgment addiction. Mm. It's now become very clear from all the data we have that we all are addicted to our phones. Yeah. Um, some of us extremely addicted. <laughs> you know, in Asia now they have special centers for millions of people who are really addicted. Yeah. Uh, but all of us to some extent addicted. Yeah. So now we, we have solved the problem of not sleeping with your phone, but what other times do you notice yourself being addicted to your phone and how do you deal with it? So uh, I definitely have begun to change my patterns, I'm proud to say. But there was a long, long time where I would sit at the dinner table and turn to the phone or be um, in conversation with somebody just be like, oh, hold on one second. I mean, I actually just did that to my publicist this morning. Sorry, Jessica. Um, <laughs> you know, it was she walked up, said, hey. And instead of putting my phone down and embracing her and saying, it was great to see you again today and, nice, you know, nice job with everything you're doing. I was like, oh, hold on a second. I'm finishing a text message. Did that text message need to happen right there? It really <laughs> did it. Like I could have given a, like a 10 second beat to embrace my publicist and say hi to her. So it, there's, you know, it's, I catch myself honestly with it all day long. Uh, I definitely think it's But better. without judgments, right? Without judgment. Yeah. <laughs> because it's really, um, it's quite terrifying that I've put my face on the cover of this book. I have to tell you, because it's, I have to hold myself accountable to, to this judgment detox. And so when I'm walking through life and and finding myself in moments of of being triggered and wanting to and judging, so I'm judging and I'm doing it and I'm going to be very honest about that. But I can't get hooked into it anymore. Yes. Or I can come out of it quicker, or I won't believe in it. I can in the moment say, I know I'm judging, but there's something within me. What is it? And I can walk away from the situation and say, what is being triggered within me that's creating this judgment? So it's the same with the phone. I think that because I've started to bring intention of, of releasing that addiction, that I can see myself in that moment and then break away from it, out it now. I'm not, I'm not unconscious to it anymore. Exactly. And we're launching an app, actually, which um, will be bidirectional, which will allow us to put our phone into dumb phone mode. Oh, cool. <laughs> and not be able to override it for a period when... You're having dinner with your husband tonight on your anniversary. Wow. And you don't want to be tempted to go to your phone. If I text you during that time, I would get a text back. Gabby is in thrive mode until oh, X. Oh, wow. So because I think, how do we change the culture? Beautiful. Right now, we all valorize and uh, celebrate people who are always on. Oh, Gabby's amazing. You text and she texts you right back. So how about if we change what we celebrate? It's funny that you say that because I, I was saying before that I know I have to at some point write about work addiction because um, until I really face some of these darker experiences that I had to face in the last two years, 
I was running for a long time. I didn't know why. So I, I honor myself for what I went through. But one of the ways that I was anesthetizing that was to work, 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 be busy, be busy. And then it was like so easy because I loved my work yes. and it was so fulfilling and I was helping people. And But the thing that you said that was so interesting was people were always like, wow, you do so much. And I was so celebrated for how much crazy I was. <laughs> I was like, so I look back now and I'm like, wow, people really, really celebrated my craziness. And, you know, whereas somebody wouldn't be celebrating you if you were, you know, doing drugs all day long. Right. But it was equally as addictive. So I really want to point that out. But now since I've been in recovery, really in the last two years, recovery from that work addiction, I've gotten really good at self-care. Really good. <laughs> long baths. And I, um, I use an infrared sauna. I'll go in for an hour a day and just really being unapologetic about taking a walk or just cooking for two hours and turning off my phone or or just having fun with, you know, sharing what I'm cooking or whatever, but not for the purpose of, of, of working. Right. And so I just want to celebrate that, particularly yes. with you, because that's the mission you've been on is really yes. helping people return to self-care. And so I'm just happy to be able to share that with you. I love that. <laughs> and also helping people realize that when we do that, we're actually much more creative and effective. That's kind of the irony. It is the irony. That when we are just working all the time, <clears throat> when we are just kind of obsessed with our inbox or uh, whatever is coming our way, we just lose the big ideas. We lose the sort of uh, moments of creativity that are really what are game-changing. The big game-changing creations occur in 17 seconds of dreaming exactly and in the shower in the shower <laughs> in the in on the walk and you know in the in the stillness and so when we're moving so fast we don't even have 17 seconds and we don't i mean people imagine they, the second they wake up they turn to the phone and they continue on so it's yeah it's scary. and that's why i love what dick nathan said that it has never been easier to run away from ourselves yeah because we don't have these spaces in between things. You know, we're, we're never bored now, which is kind of unfortunate mm -hmm, <laughs> because mm -hmm. it, there's so many this endless distractions. Yeah, it is very weird. I'm happy I grew up without a phone. I didn't even have a computer in college, which is kind of maybe I was like the last person that didn't have a computer in college. <laughs> but but yeah, I, I'm, pr I'm proud of that. We're now going to take a quick break to share a sleep tip brought to you by our sponsor, Sleep Number, because a good sleep routine is the foundation for thriving. Today's sleep tip is to practice a few minutes of deep, conscious breathing once you get into bed, to relax any tense areas in your body and slow down your mind. It's the perfect way to release the stresses of the day before you go to sleep. You can breathe in to the count of five, hold your breath for one count, and breathe out to the count of six. Stay tuned for my quick chat with Pete Bills, the Vice President of Sleep Science and Research at Sleep Number, at the end of this interview. How is your relationship with your sleep? Oh, I love this question. You can't get away with an interview with me with not being asked that. <laughs> well, this is one of the things I love most about you because I, I, I share the passion for sleep. I really, I need it. I'm not one of those people that can just get a few hours or five hours. I need eight hours. I uh, or good, solid, consistent sleep. I take it very seriously. A few things I've been doing to get a better night's sleep is eating earlier, which has been really helpful. So, so not just for my own digestion, but also so that I can actually sleep through the night and eating less at night, which has been really helpful. I don't always do it, but I try hard. 
there's I wear those blue glasses. You know what I'm talking about, right? Those, yes. I don't know what they're called, but they're like blue screen so that they take out the the screen light that keeps you hopped up. I'm not really describing this properly, <laughs> but those funky glasses you yes. can wear to help with the screens that at night. That basically eliminate the blue light. I think we need Turn an Ariana Huffington blue light glasses. <laughs> <laughs> Let's write that down. So, write that down. So, so, um, so, and they would be really chic too. So these ones are so ugly. I need better ones. Please make them for me. So I, uh, so I wear I'll those when I read you. my, because I do read from an iPad. Yes. So I, I, it's a shame because I write hardcover books and it, I, I, I feel embarrassed to say that I do like reading from an iPad, but. Um, but everything's in one place, so it's nice. So I'll read at night, or if I'm, you know, watching a show even an hour before I go to sleep or something, I want to watch with those glasses on, so I start to wind down. And then I have a real regimen of the supplements that I take. I live for supplements. Like I am, a, <laughs> like it's a little sick if you saw those closets of supplements. But I take ashwagandha, which is really good for just winding down and just calming your nervous system. So that helps me sleep and. L-theanine, which is another one that's just sort of relaxing. I'm not a doctor, everyone, so please you know, speak to your doctor before you take any of these things. But but, um, but these are just some like just natural supplements that I take that just calm me down at night and, and help me wind down. You know, I love that because what you are saying is that you're creating your own transition to sleep. And oh, I feel yeah. that's what's missing from our lives. The way you have a transition for your child, you give it a bath, you sing it a lullaby, uh, we need our own transition. I did a parody of Goodnight Moon, Gabby, that you can download from Audible for free called Goodnight Smartphone, basically putting away our day. Yeah. Uh, I personally love to have a bath as my oh, transition. bath is a big part of my yes. transition. Because yeah. it's, it's almost like, again, a ritual of water washing yeah. away the day. Uh, ah, the other thing I love to do is I've kind of rekindled the romance with sleep. Mm-hmm. And I love beautiful lingerie. Mm, good for uh, you. Which has nothing to do with whether you are sleeping with someone or not. It's just your own romance with sleep mm-hmm. and getting into something pretty and getting into you. bed. And I only read real books. Yeah? Yes, in bed. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I have my iPad for any other time. Good but for you. I love reading because, for example, when um, Judgment Detox comes out, I will read it and underline it. In yeah, bed. I like writing in the book. Yes. I agree. And I love Reading books like that, you know, reading books that inspire me and reading books that have nothing to do with work. Yeah. And um, certainly nothing to do with politics late at night. And uh, and then, you know, that moment when you're kind of drifting off while reading and you can literally let the book drop. Yeah. Which you wouldn't do with your iPad. You're right. You don't want it crashing. You're right. You're right. You're right. So the fact that you're prioritizing sleep it's so key because it's helping people realize that it's not optional because for so many decades, we treated it like something optional. I like how, how you say there's this transition. It's like put on a robe or, you know, do something simple just to get yourself into that mode. And, and it's, it is not optional. We have to take care of ourselves. And you wrote about how we can expand time mm-hmm. and slow our lives down, which doesn't mean slowing down in terms of what we achieve. We need to make that very clear. I think actually, ironically, you achieve more. Much more. When you are not constantly running mm-hmm. and having that sense of running out of time all the time. But technology is constantly fighting that. So do you have any other little tips and techniques uh, you can give us to mm-hmm. deal with all the negative aspects of technology? You know, we all can agree that we love 
what technology has made possible. This is not a Luddite argument. This is for me about setting boundaries. I agree with to you. Protect our humanity. Right, because obviously we're quite grateful for all that it's given us. Of course you are. Of course I am. But we have to have the boundaries. Otherwise, we'll get completely taken over. So this is something I really swear by, which is you do speed up by slowing down. So sometimes the more centered you are and the more easy it is for you to tune in, the easier it is for inspired ideas to come to you. The more people want to work with you, the more flow you create in your life. I've tried a few times to, to practice just looking at email at a certain hour of the day. So just not looking on the phone, not doing anything, just just going about my day and saying between 12 and 1, I'm going to get through all those emails. This is a practice I know a lot of people have like techniques around this. Um, The times in my life where I have applied that principle, my responses to those emails are so much more thoughtful because I'm not just in the taxi, just writing quickly or speaking into the phone. And I can get sort of a, a little bit more of a creative juice flowing in how I want to reply to people. And they and I don't feel so stressed out like I'm trying to keep up all day long. Yes. So if you if you have the luxury of being able to shut it down for a few hours or even an hour, even an hour, you know, really just not checking your phone or leaving your phone in the office. And so then another thing that's really nice is I live about 70 percent. I live in New York City and I live 70 percent of the time in the country. I don't know if I if I, it's been the last four, three years that I've been living most of the time in the country, like rural, rural country. And. A lot of places, like cell service doesn't work, <laughs> which is probably God just laughing at me, being like, I'm putting you to work here, right? So I, I just literally can go days where I don't have access to my phone. If I go out to a farmer's market or something, I won't have access to my phone until I get home that day. Um, or I'm driving to, to visit a friend and it's a 45-minute drive and I don't have access to listen to things or whatever. So it's it's I'm just forced to turn it off, which has been it's been quite amazing. And so I've just gotten into the habit. If I go to a dinner party, I leave my phone in the car. I love that. The universe must really love you. The universe loves me. In all these places without uh, uh, reception. And this is becoming sort of the new luxury, too. There are places where you can go on vacation that actually advertise the fact that there's no Wi-Fi. And we launched an app called Thrive Away um, that uh, helps you manage your email while you're away by sending again a message to whoever emails you, telling them that you're away until when, who they should contact if, you, if there is an emergency, and telling them that this email will be deleted. So there's this amazing feeling, which I had never experienced before, that I had over my Christmas vacation when I had zero emails in my inbox. Wow. And uh, and then when I got back, it wasn't overwhelming. You didn't People have to knew jump in. when to email me. They knew when I would get back. I hope we can manage our lives so there is always somebody who can handle emergencies, and of course they can reach us if something really terrible happens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But this idea that you can actually have time, as you are discovering, when you are not tethered to your inbox, is incredibly liberating. Yeah, it is. And uh, you are, of course, um, not just a practice meditator, but a meditation instructor. And I love the fact that you actually co-hosted the Guinness World Record Largest Guided Meditation with Deepak Chopra. What was that like? I love Deepak. I know you do, too. He's on a mission. This yes. man is on a mission. Oh, and he's been on a mission for so a long. A long time. Yeah. And and when people ask me, like, you know, is there somebody that you admire and you would, would want to... It's him because he lives with so much joy and presence 
Yes. But at the same time is really using technology and really in the world and really present with all these different ways of communication. So it's kind of amazing. And somebody needs to interview Deepak. Like, what do you do with this? Because he's so so online, but then so relaxed at the same time. Um, but he's obviously on this mission to create, to, to, to bring as many people to meditation as possible. And he's twice now, we did these global meditations. And I, I interviewed Deepak and, and, and held the space for the group. And he led this meditation. And the, the second one was the world's largest meditation. And I have to get the exact numbers for you, but it was the Guinness World Record largest mm-hmm. meditation. It was people all over the world and uh, you know, obviously in the room and on live stream, of course. And Deepak led the meditation. And now in your own practice, do you practice at a particular time, for a particular period? Does it vary from day to day? So I meditate uh, right when I wake up in the morning. And that's been helpful because I think I told you now I have a bed for my phone. So it's great. <laughs> but I was uh, for the last few months putting my phone on on uh, airplane mode. So even if I look at my clock or my alarm clock or something, it's not on, which has been interesting. It's been helpful. Uh, so I can look at the clock and then put it down. And so I'll sit in the morning and then I usually around three or four o'clock will meditate in the afternoon. I have a, a mantra based meditation practice. But the thing for me is I also love meditating to songs, like listening yeah. listening to mantras. So I will, in the afternoon meditation, often play some kind of kundalini mantra and just let the energy of the song just, it just locks me in right away. And that, it brings me a lot of joy. So I know that that's really where I want to go to. So that's the practice that I have typically. And then obviously some days it changes if I'm traveling or if it's interrupted because of something or if I have to wake up really early then you find time to meditate. I meditate on airplanes really nicely. And I, I heard Thich Nhat Hanh once, somebody asked him, um, how often do you meditate? He said, I meditate all the time. Mm-hmm. And I really understood that because I think that, that you can tune in wherever you are. And so you can be in any moment just re- returning to your breath or in any moment through a positive intention or a prayer coming I'm back. I'm doing this it. right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You reminded me. Yeah, yeah. I also love it um, in the middle of the night, you know, if you wake up, which many of us do, you know, to go to the bathroom for whatever reason, all the data shows that if you can't go to sleep right away, the worst thing you can do is try to go to sleep. Yeah. Because sleep is about surrender. And uh, trying to go to sleep (laughs) is just not going to get you to sleep Mm -hmm. faster. Mm -hmm. So what I do instead is I prop myself up and I meditate. And I remember the Dalai Lama saying that 3 a.m. is a great time to meditate. So I feel, hey, the Dalai Lama and I are meditating right now. You are. (laughs) (laughs) And and it's a nice time. Sometimes if I don't want to sit up when I'm in those moments, I'll do what is like a light bath meditation. So I'll lie on my back and I'll envision like this waterfall of light washing over me. And it's it's just a nice visualization meditation. And I'll just do that while I'm still lying down and it helps me fall back asleep. It's a nice practice. I love that. Um, So let's end with spirituality, because you talk a lot about spirituality in your books, in your talks. What does spirituality mean to you, and what does being a spirit junkie mean to you? Well, being a spirit junkie means that you are in the conscious pursuit of choosing love over fear, that that's your intention in all situations. So... That that's been my journey and my path, and in, in whatever whatever comes up for me is how can I how quickly can I come back 
I'm less concerned about how perfect my spiritual practice is, but I'm much more focused on my comeback rate and how quickly did I return to love. And uh, spirituality, I, I believe that we are spirits having a human experience. Mm-hmm. I know you've heard that phrase before, and it really is very, very meaningful to me. So I, I know this, and I obviously uh, am a, living a very human experience. I like being in this ex- human experience. I'm having fun here. This is working. It's great. But I also really know in my heart that this isn't it. And uh, having that, lifting that veil and having a, a metaphysical perspective on my my experience of this world has given me a lot of faith and a lot of freedom to to really live without the needs to to feel like I need to control circumstances and of course I I can fall back into old behaviors but I know in my heart that there's so much more beyond my physical sight supporting me and so that's that's my experience of spirituality and what does your um, metaphysical perspective tell you about death that when we leave this body, it's not over, definitely not, and that we can continue on in a different realm, and we can even be far more supportive and, and, and even far more free than, than we are here. I mean, I believe that where we are here is a place for, for learning and, 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 and our soul's growth, and that I believe our soul comes here with a decision to work a lot out and um, in the pursuit of, of, of greater consciousness. If we do sh- choose to show up here, we can... We can do it differently next time. And uh, manifesting, the whole concept of manifesting, which is so important in your work, how is that connected with the whole um, spiritual journey? Well, what really truly manifesting means that we attune our energy with the source of who we are. So when we claim that spiritual center, when we claim that we are that spirit and to simply put in layman's terms, when we connect to inspiration or joy or a place of, in, of uh, intuitive action, uh, that energy of inspiration and joy and intuition is the source, is the, is the spiritual presence of us. Being in alignment with that presence is how we manifest because it's getting in the momentum of that joyful presence attracts towards us whatever we're thinking about, whatever we feel, whatever we desire. So it's a lot more simple to manifest. And truly, we're, we're manifesting all the time, but oftentimes we're manifesting what we don't want. So the, the work for us in the practice of manifesting is learning how to deliberately create what we want by attuning our energy to the feelings and the frequencies and the ideas and the inspired experiences that we want to create in our life. And that's when manifesting can look like a miracle, right? Absolutely. Miracles are natural, and it's, it's just that we forgot. So the title of your uh, previous book, The Universe Has Your Back, that speaks a lot to me. It it really is another way of expressing my favorite Rumi quote, live life as if everything is rigged in your favor. Yeah. And somehow when things don't work the way we wish would work or the way we would like them to be manifested, it's just great to remember that the universe has our back and it may have a better plan for us. That's right. There's actually a chapter of the book that says obstacles are detours in the right shit. So, so much of this book is about just trusting that we're in the flow of something so much greater than ourselves and, and making joy the priority. And the subtitle of The Universe Has Your Back is Transform Fear to Faith. It's all about undoing the belief systems of fear so we can return to that connection to the universe. That's what the whole book is about. 
Thank you so much, Gabby. It's been such an amazing conversation, and I I feel really inspired by you and your journey and what you are bringing to the world. And I must tell you that my youngest daughter, who is on her own spiritual journey, was very deeply affected uh, by your book and inspired. And so thank you on her behalf, too. I'm so glad to hear that. Thank you. Thank you, Gabby Bernstein, for being our guest and for everybody listening. Now we're going to take a minute to talk with Pete Bills, the Vice President of Sleep Science and Research at Sleep Number. So often people ask me, should I wake up early and work out or stay in bed and get enough sleep? I know we would both give them the same answer, but let's hear the science. Well, the science is pretty simple. If that um, getting up early is cutting into your seven to eight hours of sleep, then stay in bed. You absolutely want to do that. Uh, Many, many research projects have shown that curtailing your sleep to get more done in your workout is counterproductive in a couple of ways. One, when you're tired when you're working out, your workouts are very inefficient. You hit areas of exhaustion before you should, so you quit earlier and your workout is inefficient. And then also, uh, when you're tired, Later in the evening, um, your body has high levels of cortisol, which are very, very counterproductive to recovery and so forth. So it eliminates um, the, uh, the proficiency of your body to recover from a good workout. And you don't see the results you want, and so you end up overtraining. I, I run marathons. I've seen so many people overtrain because they don't see the results that they get, and it's all because they're not sleeping enough. And also, you crave carbs and sugars. Right. When you are exhausted, when you are running on empty, when you haven't slept enough, you go to carbs and sugars to give you energy. And that is definitely counterproductive if part of working out is uh, losing weight or maintaining your weight. Right. When when you're tired, you you kind of abandon your healthy eating habits was what happens. So, yeah. So sleep is so critical. It, It amplifies all of the efforts that you have in your your workout world. So just prioritize sleep, get a lot of it and get a lot of quality sleep. Be sure to subscribe to the Thrive Global Podcast with iHeartRadio on your favorite podcast app. And stay tuned to thriveglobal.com and iHeartRadio for updates on upcoming episodes. And in the meantime, go to thriveglobal.com for tips to start thriving today. We are grateful to have our friends at Sleep Number sponsoring the Thrive Global Podcast. The sleep number bed adjusts on each side, so it works for both you and your partner. Experience the sleep number bed exclusively at one of their 550 stores nationwide. Check them out at sleepnumber.com slash thrive. If you look around, you'll see the world can be pretty smart. Okay, very smart. At Capella University, we think education should be smart too. That's why we're reshaping online learning with our FlexPath format. You can set your own deadlines, take classes at your own pace, even leverage your previous experience to move faster. So when it comes to earning your bachelor's degree, you know what kind of choice to make. A smart one. Visit capella.edu to learn more. Capella University. Don't just learn, learn smarter. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host The Bobby Bones Show. And I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. 
Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C. Or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app.